This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. LA, in a lot of respects, is just like a planning nightmare. Like they just went at it with no plan whatsoever and just sprawled and sprawled. And, you know, resources like the LA River, they concreted in. Welcome to Range, stories of the new American West. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Megan Burks, all the way down here in San Diego. That was Eileen Schmelz in the intro. She's an artist from Los Angeles who lives part-time in Yucca Valley. It's this desert community just outside of Joshua Tree National Park, where a lot of artists and thinkers are sort of tinkering around with the idea of community. I actually haven't seen that many desert experiments, although I will say that there, um, there were some kind of like... Um, interesting communities in the town I grew up in, which is Ojai, California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's it's like there's um, there's sort of like a subset of people who believe there's all these people who believe that there's um, like the magnetic center of the universe is under Sedona, Arizona. Uh-huh. And there's a small fringe group that actually believes it's under Ojai. And so <laughs> there are um, there's some groups of people that have kind of created their own communities there because they believe it's um, it's got some special metaphysical properties. It sounds like the Integratron um, just out in Landers, California, yeah. this guy built this big dome on this spot where he thought that there were some metaphysical properties and now people go there and the idea is that if you lay there you sort of start to enter into this alternate reality through those metaphysical properties Mm -hmm. yeah it's exactly like that yeah and I, I have to say, I kind of bought into it yeah. when I was laying there on the mat. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I, I like I've been in um, Sedona and Vortexes there, you know, and I like I don't know. You do definitely feel something kind of different there. And maybe you have to be like the sort of person that is, you know, open minded <laughs> to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> Um, I also just feel like there's something distinctly Western about building a commune out in the desert. Um, like I live now near the the state line of California and Nevada, and you see it on the Nevada side a lot too, that there are these people that have just kind of opted out of everyday life and decided to do their own thing out in the desert. There's so much space and there's also just sort of this ethos of, I don't know, like the pioneering thing that's still going on now. Yeah, it, it makes me think a lot about um, the author Joan Didion, and she has this premise that that kind of run, runs through her books where Californians are basically these like wackos and rejects from the rest of the country who were just looking for that space, just looking for a place to do their thing. Yes, I think her, her sense of California is, is totally spot on. Yeah, and uh, in her memoir, Where I Was From, she has this line where she's talking about her relatives who set out west with the Donner Party. And she says, they could accommodate any means in pursuit of an uncertain end. So 
like if they needed to skin a bison, they would do it. If they had to leave somebody behind on the trail, well, that's just how it goes. And uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think in some ways this could apply to all of these folks out in the desert. But more and more, I'm seeing it in terms of what happens when these wackos and rejects actually get their hands on a city. I mean, how else do you pave in a river? It's crazy. And people in the desert, (laughs) people in the desert, people like Eile, I see them as trying to sort of find the antidote to all that. I bought this almost three years ago in August. It'll be three years. So what we have here is five acres And this was an original homestead cabin built in 1958. This swath here is known as Homestead Valley. And this is um, from the Small Tract Act of 1928, where you could get a land grant for five acres if you proved up the land, meaning if you built a cabin and then applied for the grant or the deed. You know, in the last handful of years, there's been a, a resurgence of people really interested in this architecture because this architecture is very unique to this area. It's very, you know, do-it-yourself, sort of, you know, rough-and-tumble, rugged homesteader. Yeah, so, I mean, you know. it's obviously mid-century, but it's not the mid-century that you pay millions of dollars for in... I think it's just very much about it being kind of like independent, you know, being something that you could build, you and your partner, or just you by yourself could build on your own or with the help from the community and, you know, kind of that rugged western sort of attitude, you know. And, I mean, the beauty of it, too, is that it's all about being small. I mean, now I guess there's the tiny houses, but these are kind of the original tiny houses. like 12 by 16 foot cinder block structures all over the desert and a lot of them have been added on to and made into these second homes or airbnbs but a lot of them also just still exist out there just abandoned in their original state um broken windows you know sinks hurled out the window um Eileen's hers functions as a gallery called Outpost Projects and an Airbnb when she's not there. But I was really interested in what she's doing outside of the home. She bought it from a hoarder, so the land was all junked up with cars, and she's trying to bring it back to its natural state. So interesting. I, like, when I was reading this, I was like, oh my god. <laughs> That's really <laughs> interesting. Um, it sounds like it's not just restoration. It's also got kind of like a doomsday prepper feel to it, which is actually something I've been finding amusing for years, that there's this weird sort of intersection between the sustainability people and the doomsday preppers. Um, I, I, like, I, I just, I feel like there's this weird sort of um, survivalist feel to all of it. And this feels like an attempt to kind of I don't know, future-proof this community. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at how the West was developed, it almost seems like they didn't future-proof it at all. Um, Denigan talks about how the early settlers in Sacramento actually sort of bent the river, river to their will, like that wouldn't cause any problems. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, the whole California Water Project is a lesson in people. Um, and I think like you could definitely describe them as wackos trying to bend nature to their will. It, it totally blows my mind that we spent billions of dollars engineering a system to just move water around the state. A lot of times to places where the land isn't even like really great for farming, whether you have water or not. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you are trying to get to Eileen's place from here in San Diego, you're driving through like all of these ticky tacky suburbs and then these like tinderbox hills just waiting for a wildfire and then out of nowhere there are just acres and acres of green sod growing for all of those new housing <laughs> tracks and I think it go- <laughs> I think it goes back to accommodating any means I mean the things we force out of our landscape and I, I don't think we always know exactly why we're doing it um, but Eileen says that the desert sort of puts everything back in order for her Here on, on the side, this is the west side. I'm trying to shade the house during the summer. I mean, it, it's not quite doing it then yet because these trees are, they're babies still, so it'll be a couple of years. So these are deciduous, so they lose their leaves during the winter. So during the winter, you want the sun on the house to kind of warm it, and then during the summer, obviously, you want it shaded because this west side of the house just gets pounded by the sun it's really hot so that's what these apunchas these prickly pears are here for too to try to at some point shade the house and provide food this is a rainwater capture mulch pit so the water comes down from the house and it falls this pit is probably like three feet deep inside of it is a bunch of um, cardboard so it acts kind of like a sponge and then the plants find the water in the sponge and feed off it. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had to actually water these plants at all. My job today is this is a cowboy pool, so it's a water trough that I fill with water. And then when I drain it, and I do a compost tea, which helps a lot for the plants around here. And it gets drained into this pit here. So this is really just there to have that process happen? No, that's to get in. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a kiddie pool for adults. (laughs) I mean, as you can tell now, it's already getting to be like 90 degrees, right? But once it's like, you know, 100, fill that thing up, get in it, cold water. It's so nice. Mm -hmm. It just makes a world of difference, so... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Eileen is doing this cool thing where she's going out to all of these destroyed habitats and she's leaving behind these sculptures using those Homestead Act dimensions that we heard earlier. And she says that it's sort of staking claim to the land. So as before, it was like staking claim, like this is my my land tract. But now she's sort of saying, like, I see you, you exist. And she says that that's kind of what we need to start doing in our daily lives and all of our landscapes. I love that. I love the way that... Um 
that she kind of thinks about, um, I don't know, the uh, like making our mark on the land in a more positive way. Okay, so this all sounds great for the desert, but how do you bring that closer to the coast or into, you know, more habited places? Yeah, so I thought you might ask that, and it's something that I, you know, think about a lot. So I talked with Jay Powell and his wife, Roz Hurst. I met Jay while he was doing some community development work in a part of San Diego called City Heights. It's kind of this low-income area, really dense. And he and Roz first met at Arco Santi in the 70s. I, I know I've heard of that place, but I can't totally remember why. What's, what's the deal with that place? So my understanding is that it was kind of started by this Italian Lothario named Paolo Soleri. And he had been an architecture student at Frank Lloyd Wright's Taliesin West in Arizona and was kind of chased out of there. And whereas Frank Lloyd Wright dreamed of these mega suburbs, Soleri really wanted to build super dense cities surrounded by nature. Jay and Roz, they have all of these drawings from Soleri. And it shows Arco Santi as sort of this giant space station just like jutting up from the desert floor. And it's kind of tucked under this massive shade structure, like totally sci-fi. And Jay and Roz, both fresh out of college, saw this and they were like, hey, let's go to Arizona. The model that intrigued me was this whole idea of facing south, being built on a mesa, and the use of an apse, which in the wintertime, the, su- the sun comes in, it captures that heat. So and we in were, the summertime, it shades. Yeah. In the summertime, it shades. Yeah. In the wintertime, so it, it, the low sun is going in, and, yeah. and that's where so you capture So it made so much heat. sense to us to think about yeah. using math and you know using simple methods like that to make life better yeah. for, and more in tune with nature. Yeah, so tell me kind of what was going on at that time where both of you were so attracted to this this idea. Oh, it was just a time of renaissance and thinking, I think, for our generation because, you know, we're the baby boomers. We're the first generation where there was, I think, enough uh, resources that our whole generation, if you wanted to go to college, it it wasn't that terribly difficult. And so there was an awful lot of generational spirit and just the force of our numbers and that we were getting fabulous educations at these universities. You know, I mean, I went to Berkeley, it was $90 for me. The other thing that intrigued us, because here we are in Southern California, and we've graduated from universities where, wow, you can just go to the middle of the university there, the square, and you can meet your friends, and you can listen to what's going on, and you, you have a feeling of community, and there's a place to be. And so I really felt like I I wanted that. In a, I, I missed that. And Paulo very much that way coming from Europe where yeah that's how cities work you know there's a central area and everyone comes and discusses and cafes and all that and his cities would be very dense and surrounded by beauty but the density is part of the magic of society because then you do have this you know meeting of each other and the music and art and because it's all easy to do instead of getting on the freeway and like, you know, where do we go? I don't know. What's to do? I don't know. You know, there was a lot of dismay about what we've created in our cities and that it made sense to, you know, we should make it denser. And For me, uh, what grew it... Grew up in uh, L.A. Yeah, in the grew up in L.A. and saw the smog. where all is. Uh, 
I remember as a as a kid. I was very lucky because I lived um, in uh, Van Nuys and, and next to the, what was called the Sepulveda Dam Basin, and uh, the, it's the one place where the LA River is not paved. And we'd run the rapids, you know, and then you get to the dam that the Army Corps had built, and then it turned into concrete after that. But I remember playing in that area and seeing the smog roll in, and then it'd go out. We'd come through the Coinga Pass, and then one day it didn't leave. And that's about the time I, um, I was going to school at UCLA, and then uh, I decided, uh, went in, well, I didn't decide, I'd already committed. I went in the Navy, and then came back, and I just decided I'd didn't want to live there, and in that, the way that you know, L.A. had evolved, and so that was a factor in my intrigue, I guess, about what he was talking about. I remember our first uh, day up on the Mesa because there was quite a lot of need for uh, getting some concrete, making concrete, you know, or getting ready to pour things. Yeah, of course. And so uh, a real necessary job was people to carry around big carry sacks of bags. <laughs> 100-pound bags of cement. I remember doing a whole lot of that. And then later that night, I was like, I can't brush my teeth. I can't do this much. I'm like, I'm trying to brush my teeth, and I can't make my arm go. For whatever reason, it seemed like they delivered the cement down here, <laughs> and we had to carry it up this hill. Did we? No, we didn't yeah, do that. Yeah, I did that. We did a lot of heavy work. At, uh, we got strong. Maybe uh, maybe that was one of the punishments for uh, <laughs> what we had for... When we weren't, uh... Um, do you think he means partying there? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> like his little place, I'm trying to remember where it is on this out here somewhere. He had his own little on the before all this got built was just this little, you know, Apollo's cube, that we called it. And we lived down in the valley here, and uh, they had just taken eight foot by eight foot um, concrete forms with big circles cut out of them, you know, poured them on the ground, tilted them up, and then put a, another one of those on the roof. And they weren't really roofs, and they gave people the opportunity to fill them in and to live in them. Uh, that was kind of the uh, habitat that we were in. Well, what kind of guy was Solari? Kind of a uh, intellectual, oh, yeah. uh, academically oriented, um, and um, he had a lot of charisma, don't you think? I mean, yeah, yeah, he was yeah, a master, kind like, of an Italian, kind of an old well, school Well, part of the master. deal was that we would hike down across over here up to the rocks on the other side over here, this uh, kind of little valley down in here. And we would sit up there on the rocks with him, and he, it was almost like the Sermon on yeah, the Mount. But, but we'd have dialogue, you know. So Jay went on to do community development work. Yeah, so he had a hand in designing affordable housing complexes in this low-income community I mentioned, City Heights. And he helped really mobilize the people there to fight for things like transit and solar energy and parks. And he says that the movement in the West of sustainability and green building really kind of started during his time in Arcosanti. The Earth Day started in the early 70s, and uh, a lot of important legislation was passed in the early 70s, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all of that. So this was uh, kind of like, okay, 
that's good. Now we've got these kind of institutional uh, tools to work with and context. So what do we do with it? If I were to walk around City Heights today, um, are there any developments where I could say, oh, you know, that that's a concept that Jay may have taken from Marco Santi? <laughs> no, I didn't. I don't think we got to take it quite to that scale. Although I think. Uh, it really did help me think to think about. Were, you you know, always did things where you had an idea of people are living here and they need oh, yeah. spaces for their children. They need maybe a place to grow vegetables, uh, places where there could be meetings. I mean, that there was a sense of community that oh, you okay. could appreciate because well, getting grounding in that, you know, yeah. that, oh, that's what we how we want to live, you know. Well, I'll give you an example of, yeah, the... Again, kind of this innovation, you know, it's like what makes things more livable and lively, and, you know, yeah. both and those pieces. Yeah. And uh, we did a, a project where we actually converted an, uh, one alley, uh, one block of an alley into an uh, art gallery with kids. And so I think there continues to be evidence of that, um, and, and, and it's kind of inculcated in the community plan and the people and, the, and what you see in, in City Heights where neighborhoods uh, go, well, we, we need, you know, space for people. And like what Roz was saying, you know, and, and the concept of a neighborhood, uh, I learned a lot uh, by getting to work there. You know, beyond being interesting and amusing, these people with enough wackiness and courage to try to build their own versions of communities do sort of tend to be the ones who eventually figure it out for the rest of us. I, I think of it along the same lines as how California is always pushing the envelope on environmental legislation. Everyone is always saying, oh, that's impossible. Companies are saying, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. But then California does it. And then everyone just kind of figures it out. And, you know, it seems more possible. Yeah, I mean, it's really a matter of channeling California's wacko energy in the right direction, you know, working with nature instead of against it and building communities that actually work. Yes, totally. Thanks for bringing these stories to us, Megan. You can catch more of Megan's work by following her on Twitter at M.E. Burks. That's M-E-B-U-R-K-S. Thanks. Bye. Bye. See you next time. of Range was produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Our original music is composed by the super talented Mr. David Whitehead. Our illustrations are done by the equally talented Mr. James Guthman. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Range Podcast. Our partner is High Country News, a magazine about Western issues. Check them out at hcn.org. For season two of Range, we received funding from the Nevada Humanities Council. If you'd like to share feedback about this episode, suggest an idea for a future episode, or want to tell us about the desert commune you'd like to build, shoot us a note at howdy at rangepodcast.org. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us good reviews. Thanks. See you next time.
stick this pretty close to your face. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so funny because I am like so paranoid about my voice. Oh, I am too. And I'm on radio for a living. It's everybody sounds worse than they think they do. Or everybody sounds better than they think they do. <laughs> You're not giving me the confidence. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs>